Well, it's been a wonderful day with you folks, and I'm grateful for the chance to open God's Word again. Uh, beautiful afternoon. Uh, it's nice to see Newfoundland in the sunshine uh, and wa- some warmth, so that was, that was wonderful. But I actually uh, was saying to Art in June that I enjoyed the fog, too. Um, that was good, but I think it, you'd say, you know, if you lived here, you wouldn't feel that way, you know, day after day. Um, but let's pray together. Uh, I feel acutely, whenever I teach the Word, a need for Christ. I can do nothing apart from him, so let's join our hearts in prayer. Lord Jesus, you have testified very plainly of the truth of what I just said a moment ago. Apart from you, we can do nothing. We know that's not literally true. We can sin apart from you. We can waste our time apart from you. We can do things of no consequence. We can do wood, hay, and straw apart from you, but we don't want to do any of those things tonight. And so I pray, O Lord, that you would infuse me now with your Holy Spirit. Fill me with your Spirit. Give me grace to overcome my sin nature and my uh, dimness of, of vision, spiritual vision and slowness of speech. And overcome all of us in our reticence to hear the word. Lord, make our hearts like soft, fresh, upturned soil ready for the seed of the word. Help us not to be hard-hearted tonight. And help me to make things clear from Philippians chapter 4. And I pray that you would just give us grace through your Holy Spirit. Apart from the work of the Spirit, all is in vain. But uh, the Spirit is sovereign God and is powerful and will achieve everything he intends to. So please, O Lord, send forth your Spirit that we might know your word and know you. In Jesus' name, amen. So just to give you a sense of what I'm planning to do tonight and tomorrow... Um, I'm going to give an overview now in the same pattern I've been using of Philippians 4, and then tomorrow, God willing, I'm going to zero in on the topic of Christian contentment from Philippians uh, chapter 4. So I'm going to touch lightly on Christian contentment, and I'm going to set it all in context, but I'm going to delve much more deeply. Um, By God's grace, I have a book coming out on Christian contentment based on Jeremiah Burroughs' book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, up on the table, if there's any left there, uh, and we'll do all that tomorrow. But I'm going to, you know, begin to steal thunder a little bit from tomorrow by uh, setting Paul's teaching on Christian contentment in context here. But I just want to walk through uh, the entire chapter. Uh, For me, as I think about uh, Paul's statement, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. There's a sense to me of of a treasure that's that's a a secret, and this is like a treasure map. And uh, I'm listening right now to uh, something like a 75-hour audio book, the full version of The Count of Monte Cristo. And I, I never realized there was this much in the book. I'm, I'm actually getting a little bored, but I, I want to go ahead to the part that's really exciting. I've seen the movie. I've, I've listened to shorter versions. And some of you will know the story. It's the story of a man unjustly accused of a crime and imprisoned in the Chateau d'If. This is during Napoleonic era France. And um, he comes across uh, a wise priest named the Abbe Faria who has a secret treasure map. And the treasure map leads him to the island of Monte Cristo where there's an almost incalculable uh, treasure and he uses it uh, in the story to get his revenge against those who have uh, unjustly accused him. But there's something really exciting about secret treasure maps. You think about uh, all of the stories that involve secret treasure or buried treasure like pirate stories. I grew up when I was a kid uh, reading pirate stories. You know, like uh, Treasure Island, Robert Louis Stevenson's, you know, where, where the X marks the spot, things like that. 
But it's not so preposterous. You know, Jesus actually used a parable. He said that the, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold everything he had and bought that field. And so the idea of hidden treasure is actually a, a very powerful one. Now, for me, I think it's, it's essential to the parable that the man who found that treasure opened the box. What would you think of a man that found, you know, a wooden chest and digs it out and looks at it without opening it, says, there's, I, I have a good feeling about that box. There's something, I know it, there's something valuable in there. I'm going to bury it and sell everything I have to buy that box in the hopes that there'll be something valuable inside. I bet he popped the lock. What do you think? I bet he opened up the lid and he looked inside the box to see what there was. When he saw the treasure that was inside that box, he knew it was worth it to sell everything that he had. You probably never thought about the parable like that before, but it, you know, I, I'm thinking he, he looked in that, in that box, or else he's a fool, a gambler, gambling everything he has on something he hopes will work out. Now, as I look at all of Philippians 4, not just the idea of Christian contentment, which we're going to unfold, God willing, tomorrow, but the things that are said from the very beginning of this chapter right through, it's really just like lifting one treasure after another up out of the treasure box. But now, the treasure is Christ. And as we look at step by step the, thing that Paul, the things that Paul commands the Philippian Christians to do in the Christian life, uh, you need to think about Christ in terms of every one of them. So let's read the chapter, and then we'll walk through it step by step. Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Sintiki to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything's excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles, 
Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. All right, so from the very beginning, from chapter uh, 4, verse 1 to verse 9, he gives a series of very short commands that if you follow them, you will have a joyful, peaceful, fruitful Christian life. They are treasures coming up out of the treasure box who is Christ. And we're going to go through them line by line. And then I'm going to set the, the teaching on Christian contentment in the context of the chapter, which I'll do again tomorrow so you understand it. And so I'll just go through those verses just to give you a simple understanding of how they settle into the chapter. And then we'll go right to the end with Paul's final greetings. So let's start with verse 1. In verse 1, you need to understand that the epistle did not come with chapter and verse divisions. So this just flows on from what he'd just been talking about in, in Philippians chapter 3. I find the chapter and verse divisions helpful. I'm glad that in the course of time and providence they were given to us. But you really need to see this, uh, you know, this flow of argumentation. Especially when you see the word therefore. Whenever you see the word therefore, it should cause you to look back in the text. No epistle, no book of the Bible ever begins with the word therefore. Because it's right in the middle of a flow of thought. And what has he been talking about? He's been talking about forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, pressing on, making progress in the Christian race. That is how everyone should see the Christian life. Very clear contrast with the pagans surrounding us whose God is their stomach. We are living for the glory of God. We're living that Christ be magnified in our bodies, whether by life or by death. And we do that by making continual progress in Christ, running a race, forgetting what lies behind, straining after perfection. Therefore, you know, since that's the way to live the Christian life, he says, therefore, my dear brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Now, he says some really nice things about them. And I think you see the affection of the Apostle Paul. He was filled with love for the Philippian church. He loved them. And he said he longed for them. He delighted in them and wanted to be with them again. He didn't know if you would ever see them again, this side of heaven. But he yearned for them, and he certainly yearned to spend eternity with them. And for them, he said, you are my joy and you are my crown. I have great delight in your conversion, great delight in your progress in Christ, and you are my crown. He says this also in Thessalonians. You're the crown in which I will glory when Christ returns. And so he expects to be rewarded. They are his honor. They are the fruit of his labor. They are his crowning achievement. 
But then he says this interesting thing. That is how you should stand firm in the Lord. Now here's a bit of a confusion. I thought we were talking about forgetting what lay behind and straining toward what lies ahead. I thought we were talking about a running a race with endurance here. But here we've got, that's a very dynamic Im image, isn't it? Making continual progress. But he says that's how you should stand firm in the Lord. Well, that's taking a stand and not moving. How do you put these seemingly conflicting images together? How do you both stand firm in the Lord and make continual progress? Well, I say to you, you must do both. And both of them are, are vital aspects of understanding the Christian faith. There are many verses in the New Testament that tell you to stand firm or take a stand. For example, in the spiritual warfare passage in Ephesians 6, it says, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And put on the full armor of God so you can stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firmly. He says that four times. You are to stand firm in the day of testing, in the day of temptation. But yet you're to be making continual progress, running a race with endurance, laying aside every hindrance. How do you put these two images together? And so I thought about this long and hard, and I got a couple of images in my mind that helped me. We make progress by standing firm. Uh, some time ago, I watched a documentary about uh, a team that was climbing Mount Everest, and they were climbing in a, in a terrible storm. And they were coming across that final ridge, this knife ridge with thousands of foot drop on either side. And there was a strong crosswind. And they had these, these crampons on their boots that enabled them to grip down in the snow and the ice. And every footfall that took minutes for them, they were concentrating and breathing and making the next step and making certain that their feet were secure as they walked along the knife edge on, on, on the edge of death at every moment with a very strong crosswind. So that's the image that I have of the Christian life. The crosswind represents the world, the flesh, and the devil that wants to sweep you off the mountain of salvation. It's assaulting your soul at every moment. It's not a benign trip we're making here. It's not a light thing. It's constantly opposed at every moment. And the only way you're going to make progress is by having a secure footing under you at every moment. And that footing is Christ, or you could say that footing is your justification or your you're standing in Christ. So remember, you go back to Philippians 3.9. He talks about not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but the righteousness that is by faith in Christ. The righteousness comes from God and is by faith. So you are perfect in Christ positionally. And just know that for the rest of your lives that you could not be seen any more pure or perfect in the eyes of the Father than you are already. You will not make any improvement whatsoever in your standing by your performance. Stand firm in that at every moment and make progress toward holiness. That's the image I have here. Now, you probably were never troubled by Philippians 4.1 before. It's my job to trouble you. You're like, all right, I'm going to stand firm, and that's how I'm going to stand firm. You're going to stand firm by making progress, absolutely. And honestly, if you don't make progress, you will not stand firm. You've got to keep growing. You've got to keep moving. You've got to keep putting sin to death by the Spirit. You've got to do this, and so that's what he says. Now, in verses 2 and 3, we've already touched on them lightly. 
He says, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Sintiki to agree with each other in the Lord. How would you like to be these two ladies and to know that you have made it? I mean, you're famous. For 20 centuries, people have been reading your names. And everyone knows about you. Doesn't that make you, doesn't that just warm your heart to know how famous you are? Well, I mean, I guess so, yes and no. It's kind of like Job's wife. Do you want to be her? Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. That's your one line in the Bible. That's not too encouraging. Oh, Lord, please give me another chance, another line, something. But here are these two women, and what they're famous for is having an argument and not getting along with each other. But here Paul is making a direct appeal to them in a letter that would be read to the whole church, to the overseers and deacons, this letter is addressed. And so here's the thing. These women are not, other than this, they're not famous women, but they're important, and their conflict is hurting the church. It's affecting the church. It's, it's the whole church's business. And, you know, there are a lot of Yodias and Sintikis, men and women alike, whose conflicts over the years, over the centuries, have hurt the unity of the church. And so to some degree, you just read yourself in here and say, this is me and so-and-so, and our conflict needs to get resolved. Paul is, through these words, pleading with us to be resolved with each other. Pleading with us, begging us. And, and honestly, as though Christ were making his appeal through him. So it really isn't a matter of Paul. Christ wants you to be one. He wants you to be united. And so he's pleading with Yodia and Sintiq. And, and, and to what end? To, to agree with each other. To be of one mind, like we talked about earlier. Like the Trinity, like the Father and the Son. So I, I said, uh, you know, in, in that message, put them in a room. Don't let them come out till they agree. No, I mean really agree. Like, is that even possible? Not we've agreed to disagree. Not that but that they would seek the face of God and that they would humble themselves and not seek their own interests, but seek the interests of, other, of the other person and consider the other person more important than them and whatever they need to do in the spirit to agree. And then he asked this man, Syzygis or loyal yoke fellow, help them. Sometimes some people get locked into a, an issue, a conflict, and they need someone else to help. And see, you know, she's right about this and she's right about that. Listen to each other. Let's come to some harmony. I really believe in most difficult issues, it's almost like a, a bubbling uh, recipe, like, um, like spaghetti sauce or something like that. And, and person A has 40% of the ingredients and person B 60% or 50-50, 30-70, 10-90, doesn't matter. But you've got to have all of those spices and all of those ingredients to make the spaghetti sauce or whatever just right. And so you both need to contribute what you have to offer. And therefore, you both need to listen because you basically know what you have to offer, but you don't know what the other person, want, what the Lord wants them to contribute. And so there is this unity. So come together, talk to each other, and end up united. That's what he's talking about. And that is a treasure. It's part of the treasure that we Christians have the resources to work through our difficulties and our differences. Start with Christian marriage, that we have the power in the Christian marriage to genuinely agree with one another. We have the power to not see the marriage go on, on, on the rocks and be destroyed through division and conflict. We actually have the power to be resolved and to love one another. And then within the church, we have the power to, to get through challenging difficulties, listen to each other, and come to a beautiful uh, solution. And so that's what he urges them to do. 
And then he says, help these women. And look what he says about them. They have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. So they're special. They're co-laborers. Paul had a great respect for godly women who labored with him. As a matter of fact, this particular Philippian church, women were the beginning of it all. He, would, he went down to a river. There was no synagogue there in Philippi. And he went down and there were a group of, of women that were gathering uh, at the river to pray. And Lydia, the dealer in purple cloth, was one of them. And she was a wealthy woman. Purple was a luxury item and she had some money and she invited them to come and stay at her house. She said, if you consider me a disciple of Christ, please stay with me. Honor me with your presence. So she was the first convert there. And so she was the basis of that church. So he had a, a, godly, a respect for godly women and co-laborers and so does God. Remember how the widow put in those two copper coins and Jesus said she put in more than anyone else. And so there's a sense of the honor of women who have labored in the gospel. Though many of them perhaps unsung, they don't necessarily make the pages of history. And so it's, it's very uh, encouraging and exciting. And then Clement as well, and the rest whose names are written in the book of life. I just got done preaching through the book of Revelation, and that's the record of all of those who have come to faith in Christ. And they'll spend eternity with uh, Christ. And so greet them, work together, be one together. Now comes probably the most famous verse in the, in the book. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. That is the fourth and fifth time in this epistle that Paul has commanded the Philippians to rejoice. So four and, fourth and fifth time. So five times by the time we get to the end of verse four, he has commanded these people to rejoice. Now you're like, I don't, I don't know that you can do that. I mean, joy is an emotion, right? A feeling. How do you command an emotion? How indeed can we be commanded to be joyful? This is a command. Be joyful. Rejoice in the Lord. And again I say rejoice. I'm commanding you twice. Well, this is a very good question. How can we command our feelings? How can we command our joy? Well, first of all, understand it's not just any joy. Joy is really just happiness. I don't see a big distinction. When I was first a Christian, I was told happiness is what the pagans do. We Christians do joy. I'm like, well, give me, just give me a definition of, of joy. And the more they talk, it just sounded like happiness to me. So I'm just going to say they're the same thing. Now, the pagans get happy over different things than we get happy. And we get happy, actually, over the same kinds of things. But we get happy over other things. And so there's a great happiness that comes from Christ. That's what we're talking about here. You should be happy in Christ. And that's a, a solid foundation. And we're going to talk more about this with Christian contentment that never changes. Christ crucified and resurrected, that should be enough for you to be joyful today. No matter what circumstances you face. We'll talk more about that tomorrow with Christian contentment. But that is a sufficient basis forever for you to be joyful. And Jesus said it. And, and we, we talk about joy, and you look at it, and, and you think, all right, does the Scripture give us pictures? Yes, actually, the Scriptures gives us many pictures of things that make people joyful and say Christ will make you feel like that. Like in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, he talks about a, a light shining in darkness. It leads to that section you just read a moment ago. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of the shadow of death, light is dawn. They rejoice before you. As people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. So those are two different images, right? Harvest time. 
when you finally have pulled in all the weed and it's in the barn and it was a bumper crop and you're going to eat through the winter and you can sell uh, the excess that you don't need and you're going to be prosperous because the Lord has blessed you so rejoice you see this in the book of Ruth they they celebrate the barley harvest and they are they are there and they're celebrating the grain and they're and they're there and that's uh, that's when uh, Ruth and Boaz get together but this is celebration it's a festive time and so there's that image then there's the image of a battle a great battle and you've won and you've survived start there but not only have you survived not only are you alive there's plunder to be divided up there's spoils, and you're now wealthy because you won the battle, and you can strip the dead, and you can get their gold and their silver and all their plunder, and now it's yours. Those are the two images Isaiah gives us. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. So Jesus is a source of joy, like a harvest and like a battle. Or Jesus likens it to a woman who's in labor and about to give birth. Remember? He says she's grieving and in agony. But when the child is born, she rejoices over the child and forgets all of the grief that led up to it. So said Jesus. That's how it's going to be for you. You will grieve when you see me die. But then you will see me again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. So those are just different images that we have here. The, the harvest taken into the, into the uh, granaries, into the barn. And the, the warriors who win a, a great battle and divide up the plunder, the woman who's holding the baby healthy on her, on her chest and she's happy that the baby is born and she is healthy and safe and everybody's happy. The dad is there. There's, there's so much joy. That's what it's like. Rejoice in Christ. And here's the thing. Christ is a permanent source of joy for you. Christ crucified has taken away all of your guilt taken away all of your condemnation before God. You have a righteous standing before God because Jesus died in your place and has given you his righteousness. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He's given that to you as a gift. Rejoice. And not only that, God raised him from the dead and because he lives, you also will live. You're going to live forever. He's going to raise you up. He's going to raise you up out of your grave and you're going to, you're going to receive a glorious body made like his glorious body. No, no longer in this lowly, corrupted, sinful body. You're going to be in a body just like his. Said that at the end of the, the last chapter that we just studied. By the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. We'll transform our lowly bodies and make them like his glorious body. I'm, I'm just going to ask you, is that not enough for you to be joyful every day? And oh, how much the world needs this. How depressed is the world? How grieved and sad is the world. Because their God is their stomach and it just doesn't satisfy. And they know it. And they keep searching restlessly for things. And they're not satisfied. But we Christians, we have a lasting source of joy. So rejoice in the Lord. Now, can we be commanded to rejoice? Yes, we can. Why? Because emotions are the response to perceived truth. Not necessarily to truth. If you believe a tragic lie, you will be filled with grief, though you ought not to be. Let me give you an example. A number of years ago, I watched a movie entitled We Are Marshall. It was about a football team, a college football team, in 1970, I think, that uh, the plane crashed and everyone on board died. 
It was a tragic story. And then in the movie, a coach comes and builds, rebuilds the program. Now, according to the movie and the story, there was an assistant coach who didn't get on the plane. And he was going through the mountains of West Virginia to go on a recruiting trip to get some players for the future, for next year. So he called his wife to tell her that he would not be on the plane. But she wasn't home, and they hadn't invented answering machines yet. So he called a neighbor lady, and she did answer the phone. Said, would you please tell my wife that I'm not going to be on the plane, I'm coming a few days later to do some recruiting. Okay, all right, I'll tell her. She forgot. Never told the wife. Wife gets another phone call, hears that the plane has crashed. She goes to the site. Everyone on board is dead. There's no survivors. And there's grieving and there's crying. And she's crying. She's grieving. She's filled with sorrow. Why? Because she's a widow. Her children, their children have no father. But it's not true. Now let me ask you a question. Are her emotions reasonable? Given her misunderstanding, they were. They were. But if she knew the truth, she would have a different feeling. Now she'd still grieve because some friends died. That's true. But I'm talking about the specific topic. Am I a widow? Are my children fatherless? The answer is no, you're not a widow, and no, they're not fatherless, so you shouldn't grieve like that. So think about Mary, all right? Resurrection morning, remember that? She goes to finish the anointing of the corpse. She's worried about who's going to move the stone, remember that? She gets there and finds stone's been moved. Well, that's one problem solved. But all she's about is one thing. She just wants to finish her job of anointing and wrapping the body, remember? And she looks in, and the body's gone and all that, and there's some angels there that say, woman, why are you grieving? Remember, she's weeping. Why are you grieving? They've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they put him. Then Jesus appears to her and says, woman, why are you grieving? Isn't it wonderful how Jesus and the angels have the same lines? Woman, why are you grieving? Do you not see what's implicit in the question? Your grief is inappropriate. This is a very happy day in redemptive history. Do you realize how many women in all of redemptive history would like to be you? You're here on resurrection morning seeing the empty tomb, and not only that, you're seeing me, the resurrected Christ. It's not a weeping time. But she thought wrongly. She thought he was still dead. The same thing with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They were downcast. They were depressed. They're walking with this stranger. And they're, and they're saying, we had hoped that he was going to be the one. You remember what Jesus said to them? How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer and then come into his glory? So, rejoice in the Lord always. Just feel the Lord educate you and remind you and teach you doctrine and if need be, rebuke you out of your inappropriate unhappiness. There is a joy that's come into your life that's transcendent compared to any situation you'll ever face. So that's how he can command you to rejoice. And he's going to talk about mind control. The key is mind control. We'll get to that in just a moment. You've got to control what you think about so that you can rejoice. Also keep in mind that joy, this kind of joy, is a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. As the Holy Spirit has control of you, you will be filled with joy. By the way, I look on joy in the Christian life as somewhat like a canary in a coal mine to see if you're healthy or not spiritually. 
You know, they used to put canaries in the coal mine to see if there was gases in there that might hurt the miners, and the canaries would start to wilt before the miners would feel the, the danger of the poisonous gases. And so it is, how's your joy? If you don't feel joy, something's wrong. There might be some sin in your life, unconfessed sin. There might be some other issue that needs to be addressed. So rejoice in the Lord always, he says. I will say it again, rejoice. Verse 5, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. ESV has reasonableness. So I looked it up. I was working with Carolyn right before I came here. I got to get this word right. Gentleness, reasonableness, which is it? So I looked at the Greek, etc. There's a sense of mildness to this. A sense of, of, a, of a thinking mildness to this word. A mild response, a tenderness, a kindness, a reasonableness to the response. So that you are a mild-mannered person. You're, you're low-maintenance, okay? <laughs> you're, you're meek. You're not an overpowering flavor, Okay? There's a mildness, and this is like Christ. He said, I am gentle and humble and, and hard, and you'll find rest for your souls. The children felt comfortable around Jesus, climbing in his lap. There was a sense that he was a welcoming person, a tender person. So let that be evident to everyone who knows you. The Lord is near. So as, as you have a sense of the closeness of God, let your gentleness be evident to all. It's similar to blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Be a meek person. The Lord is near. And then he says, and these were some of the first verses I ever memorized. I used to do the topical memory system with the navigators. And Philippians 4, 6, and 7 were some of the first verses I ever memorized. Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So here, Paul is commanding us not to be anxious about anything. Anxiety is a great dishonor to God. What is anxiety? What, what is worry? What really is it? You know what I think it is? It's a very poor use of a wonderful gift. And the wonderful gift is imagination. All right? You're imagining things about the, the future, only you're imagining dark things about the future. All of the terrible things that will happen. The worst case scenarios, right? I might end up dead in a gutter by the end of the day. Well, that's true. It is possible you might end up dead in the gutter by the end of the day. Face down, mind you. It's like, look, most of the things we worry about and are anxious about never happen. And so we are forbidden to be anxious. Frankly, the opposite of anxiety is Hope. They are absolutely diametrically opposed. What is hope? Hope is a sense, a feeling in the heart that the future is bright. Christian hope is that all of that is based on promises from God. Hope is a feeling that the future is bright. Christian hope bases that feeling on God's promises. Such as, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will go ahead of you and prepare good works in advance that you should walk in. So you have good works to do. That no temptation will overcome you. Greater than you can bear, but he's going to filter the temptations and with the temptation, make a way of escape. He's not going to lose any of you. He's going to hold on to you to the end. No temptation will be great enough to rip you out of Jesus' hand because he's greater than all and the Father's greater than all and so you're not going to fall away. 
I mean, you could go on and on, and so therefore you have great hope from now until you die. And then things really start getting good. The eternal future is infinitely brighter than any of that. You're going to a place where there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. That's what your future looks like. And you're going to be in a resurrection body, so glorious and wonderful and majestic, just like Jesus' resurrection body. And you're going to be in a resurrected world, a world with no corruption, no decay, a world of beauty and perfect order, surrounded by brothers and sisters who've been redeemed just like you. That's where you're going. You should be filled with hope. Anxiety is exactly the opposite. Future's dim. It's looking dangerous. I don't think we're going to make it out of this one alive. You know, that kind of thing. The anxiety. And so he says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So he gives different words for prayer. Petition, like the persistent widow, keep asking, keep praying. Now, I don't want to be frivolous about this at all. You might have a child that has a terminal illness. And the prayer has to do with this child being healed. And we're talking about literally life and death. I understand that. I'm not minimizing it. We've had numbers of situations like that in the 20 years I've been pastor. Sometimes the children are healed and sometimes they die. You know that. But don't be anxious about it. Don't be anxious about anything. Where, O oh, grave, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? We don't need to fear death. And so there is a sense in which we are commanded not to be anxious about anything, but make your request known to God by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. What does that tell you? God always deserves your thanks, no matter what happens in this specific issue. God always deserves to be thanked. Thank you, God, that I have access to you in prayer. Thank you that by Jesus' death, there's a new and living way by which I can pray. Thank you that you're a prayer-hearing God. Thank you that you're sovereign. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that nothing... Nothing bad ever comes to me from you because you're good. Everything you give me is good. Just thank you, Lord. With thanksgiving, present your request to God. So go ahead and ask. Ask for the healing. Ask for the job. Ask for the financial need. Ask. Make your request. But then, it's so beautiful, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, here's the thing. This is so beautiful. There is peace from God. And there is the peace of God, okay? Let, or put it this way. There is a status of peace and a sense or feeling of peace. Those are two different things. So let me talk about the first. If you are justified by faith, you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1. God is at peace with you. And you are at peace with God. Like two nations who are not at war but have a friendly relationship, like the United States and Canada. Or the United States and England. The U.S. was at war twice with England years ago. But we've been at peace with them for centuries. And uh, they're allies. So there's a status of peace between the United States and the United Kingdom. So there's a status of peace between us and God. And don't minimize that. Because at one point, God was your enemy and you were his. At when we were still enemies, Christ died for us. So we were enemies, but no longer. Now we are not just friends but we are reconciled, we are adopted sons and daughters of the living God. So you are forever at peace with God, and he is forever at peace with you. But you don't always feel peaceful, do you? That's a feeling of peacefulness, and that's what Paul's talking about here. This is a sense or feeling of peacefulness. If you take anything you'd be anxious about 
and give it to God in prayer, the peacefulness that characterizes God will cover you. God is a peaceful being. I mean, he's not flying off the handle. Did you know that? God's not up there on his throne wringing his hands saying, what shall we do? What shall we do? I don't know what to do. This is a really hard one. Boy, this was a rough day. He never does that. Our God is in heaven. He's on his throne and nothing phases him. He's at peace always. And so the peacefulness that characterizes God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Stand guard over you and not let you be anxious. That's what Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says to me. So follow its advice. Whenever you're tempted to be anxious, pray and wait on God for the peacefulness that you need. Then he says in verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Now, we could almost, I'm not saying that we should in a translation or whatever, but for me as a preacher, I would insert the word only. Think only about these things. These are the only kind of things you're permitted to think about. True, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. That's it. So again, I ask the same question. Can you really do this? Can you control your thought life? Can you control your thinking patterns? Not only you, can you, you must. You must control your mind. Don't think about anything but what is true. Don't let any falsehood come into your mind. Don't think about false things. But think only those things that are true. That's the scripture. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So think about the truth. Only those things that are true. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind in the truth. Think about what is true. And what about the word noble? Think only about noble things, not ignoble or dark or dirty things. But think about noble things, those things that elevate your mind, those things that are, are true, noble, right those things that are correct, the righteousness of the thoughts, pure thoughts, not dark. This is the testimony we've heard. God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. If we claim to walk in the light but walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And that's what he's saying. God is light. And so I want to think about only those things that are pure. I don't want any darkness mixed in with my mind. I want to get rid of dark thoughts, wicked thoughts, pure, noble, right, true, lovely, those things that are beautiful. We are going someplace, and this is something I can't wait. We're going someplace to the source of all beauty there's ever been. This is a beautiful world we live in, and I've seen a lot of the natural beauty there is in the world, a lot I haven't seen yet. But I've been privileged to go to a lot of beautiful places. This is a beautiful place. It really is. And God made it beautiful. But there's just beauty all over the world. The source of that is God. And so think about those things that are lovely and admirable. And only those things. Now what I like to do uh, with this list, true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, is to think about Christ in every case. Is Christ not the truth? Is he not noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. Focus your mind on Christ and his greatness and his beauty and drive out all other thoughts. You must have a mind controlled by the Spirit. Romans chapter 8 says that's the essence of the sanctified life. The mind of the flesh is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. And out of that mind flows your whole life. And this is what I want to say. Whenever you sin, whenever you violate your conscience, 
and do something that, that is sinful and shameful. Confess it, certainly. Ask God's forgiveness, yes. But trace it back to the poor thinking that gave it uh, root. It always comes back to some kind of wrong thinking. Find out how the devil deceived you and tricked you into thinking wrongly and kill that thought. We are supposed to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Then he says, powerfully, whatever you have learned, and this is, I'll tell you what, I wonder if Steve or I as pastors or any, any leader would ever have the courage to say something like this. This has got to be one of the boldest things Paul ever said. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, that's the book learning side, the doctrinal side, or seen in me, that's the practical example side. So those are the two patterns of discipleship, book learning, life learning. Whatever you have learned from me doctrinally and whatever you've seen in my life, put those things into practice and God will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. Now, that's a bold statement, but that's exactly the kind of leaders we need. We need those kind of spiritual leaders that say, follow me as I follow Christ. And Paul's saying that, take in my doctrine, take in my teaching, look at my example, imitate it, and God, the God of peace will be with you. All right, so verses 1 through 9, step by step by step, those are treasures of the Christian life. Practical, applicable, you can just read over that and absorb it. Now let's talk about Christian contentment briefly, and we'll talk more, uh, God willing, tomorrow. He talks here in verses 10 through 19, that whole section is about some money that they sent. That's really what it's about. You can, you can find it there. He talks about the gifts they sent uh, in verse um, 18, I think. I've received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. You see that? So it's money. All right, understand in the, in the prison system back then, uh, they didn't feed you. I mean, they didn't feed you. They didn't give you a blanket if you were cold. You needed an external support system in order to make it through. Not only that, but they were pretty clever about that. If they wanted to get all the Christians in a certain city, they would arrest one of them and the other Christians would come help them. So it took great courage to assist brothers and sisters who were in prison because guilt by association, they'd just take you in. And so Epaphroditus was sent with, apparently, it seems, a bag of money. Maybe some silver coins. And he said, I'm amply supplied. Now, I want to talk to you about the money you sent. First of all, I got it. So thank you. I mean, I think it's just good manners to write a thank you note. I think Philippians is the greatest thank you note that's ever been written. You sent me money? Thank you. But I have more to say than that. I just want to thank you for the money. All right? So he's doing that. He says, I want to thank you for your... So verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that finally you've thought about me again. That's about what he says. You know, he said, look, I'm not blaming you. You had no opportunity to help me. And in the past, you helped me. You were always, you were one of the first, you were the first church to help me and to assist me. And now you've renewed that. And I want to say thank you. And I am filled with joy over it. I am really, really happy about the money. Well, of course you are, Paul. It makes perfect sense. No, 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 not like that. I want you to understand why I'm happy about the money. And it's not what you think. Because honestly, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. I was content before the money got here. I'll be content while I eat what it buys, and I'll be content after it's spent. So you actually didn't add anything to my contentment. Please don't be insulted, but it's true. I want to teach you something about contentment that I have learned. 
Contentment is a secret to be learned, and I've learned that secret. And I don't need your money to be content. It's a blessing, and I'm happy about it. I'll tell you why in a minute. But I want you to know for myself, I didn't need the money in order to be content. I know how to be full, have a full stomach. I know how to have an empty stomach. I know how to be cold. I know how to be warm. I know how to be richly celebrated and, and sit down at a lavish feast at some Roman official whose father-in-law I healed on Malta. I, they, I, can, I can sit down and they, the Romans can roll out the red carpet and I can, I can eat a feast. But I can also starve and not think God doesn't love me anymore. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who strengthens me. So I want to teach you, Philippians, the secret of Christian contentment. Now, I can't do it. I can't. But I want to tell you that there is such a thing. And I want to set it up in your mind so that you begin praying toward it and growing toward it. Because it's something that you can only gain by experience. You have to live through the circumstances. But I have learned the secret, and someday I hope, Philippians, you will too. And God, through the Holy Spirit, put it in here for us to learn that we would also learn the secret of abiding Christian contentment. We'll talk more about it tomorrow. But he's saying, I want you to know what I'm really happy about is that the money you sent is now going to be credited to your account. What does that mean? God is a record keeper. He knows even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And how much money you give to help a poor brother or sister in Christ, God doesn't forget anything. He's an incredible record keeper. And so the money you have given to support me and my ministry, God has written it down, and you're going to see that money again on Judgment Day. Randy Alcorn in his book, Heaven, or uh, Money, uh, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, not Heaven, although I think he does mention it there as well, talks about our earthly money. And he says you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And you do that by giving it away in the Lord's work. And so he's saying to these Philippians, you gave this money away and it is now credited to your account. And I'm happy for you. That's what he's saying. Uh, so if you look at it, uh, verse 17, I'm looking, not, not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. And now it has been. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus uh, the gifts you sent. So in other words, you affected eternity and your heavenly reward, and you've helped me physically as well, and I just want to say thank you. And your gifts are a fragrant offering. They're an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. The sacrificial language here, money as a sacrifice. And you will in no way be deficient. The money that you gave away, I'm promising you will have no lack. My God, verse 19, will meet all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. So as, the, as you give money away by faith, uh, God will supply. Now he's not necessarily, I'm not, I'm not a uh, prosperity gospel guy where you give like seed money and God will reply, you know, 160 or 30 times what was on. Have you seen these guys, these charlatans? Paul's not like that. He's not promising. If you give to me, God will give you a hundredfold back. He's not making that. He's just saying God's going to meet your needs. You're not going to starve because you gave this money away. You're going to have food, clothing, and shelter, and with that you'll be content. The money you sent will be stored up on your, for your account forever, and you will not starve because you gave this money away. God is going to meet your needs the way he met mine. Now, that's setting the whole contentment teaching in context. We'll dig in deeper tomorrow, God willing. Let's finish the epistle and then we'll pray. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. To God be the glory. That's Paul's desire back from 120. 
My only desire is that Christ be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. He says it again here. To God be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. And then he says, greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. You know, that's in every epistle. Say hello to everybody. Right hand, you know, the, what is it, the kiss of peace. I like the firm handshake of peace better than the kiss of peace. I don't know. Maybe in some countries they still do the kiss of peace, but uh, a, a warm handshake, a nice hug. But greet one another horizontally. Just understand you're not the only Christian in the world. And your church isn't the only local church in the world. Just understand, there's a worldwide movement of Christ here. And so I'm saying greetings, say hello, greet one another. And then say, the saints that are here with me, they send their greetings. They send on their greetings. And I love this part, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Wink, wink. Uh, there are some Romans who have been converted. He mentioned them, I believe, back in chapter 1. And these perhaps might even been Praetorian Guard. Uh, these were some of the most courageous, fearless soldiers in the entire Roman army. They were, they were given the task, like the secret service, of watching over Caesar. And some of these tough soldiers had been brought to faith in Christ. Now, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a truth in church history that within the first century, within the first century, the gospel had spread as far as Hadrian's Wall in, in, in England, in the U.K., how in the world did the gospel get that far that fast? Could it be some Praetorian guards went up there and took some, some uh, you know, duty up there and also took the gospel up there? And they're every bit as courageous for Christ and for evangelism as they were as warriors for Rome. I don't really know, and I'm looking forward to getting to heaven. I want to know that full story. How did the gospel reach so far so fast? But I don't wonder. I think the Praetorian converts must have been part of that. Anyway, they say hello. All the saints in Caesar's household send greetings. And then he finishes as he always does. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Friends, that's not just a throwaway. The fact is you need more grace. You need more grace. You're not done needing grace. You don't ever need to say to God, I have enough grace now, thank you very much. I'll be fine from here. I'll be fine tomorrow. You don't have to send me any grace. If God withholds grace from you, you will apostatize immediately and go to hell. He's got to continue to support your faith while you need it, and he will, and surround you with a wall of protection so you're not tempted beyond what you can bear. He needs to continue to feed your soul with the word of God. And so he ends all his epistles with basically, now take this epistle with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit as you go on from here. And so I also say to you, now God willing, tomorrow as we assemble to worship on the Lord's Day, I will dig into the topic of Christian contentment and we'll learn more of Paul's secret of being content in any and every situation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the time we've had tonight in your word. We thank you for your grace in giving us the truth. Father, I pray that you would take what we've learned from these four chapters in Philippians and press them home to our hearts. Help us to know the truth and let the truth set us free. I thank you for these dear brothers and sisters at Calvary Baptist. I thank you for all that you've done in them and through them. And I pray that I could continue to be a friend and an encourager to each one of them as they have been so richly to me. In Jesus' name, amen.